appreciate you guys being here. It's good to see everybody. We're in John 17. For those of you that are guests, as Joe said, uh, we're thankful that you being with, of you being here with us. Uh, we tend to study through books of the Bible at a time, verse by verse, and we've been in John for several months and months and months, and we're now in John 17. Some uh, commentators actually say that the first part of John, really up to about the 12th chapter, is really just an introduction. And then you get into the meat of, of John. Uh, this morning, I'm excited because we're going to not only hear one of the most profound prayers, specifically the pr- most profound prayers of the Son of God, we're also going to learn about prayer. And really for the next four weeks, we're going to be learning about prayer. We're going to be in chapter 17 for the next four weeks. It's really divided into, you could divide it into three parts or four parts Uh, And the first part that we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 to 5, is Jesus' prayer for himself. And what we'll see quickly is that his prayer for himself is radically different than the prayers that we tend to offer up for ourselves. And then if you you advance on, what you'll see is in verses 6, really down to 19, Jesus' prayer for believers. He's praying for the disciples specifically, but he's praying for all those who've put their faith in him, trusted in him as Savior. And he prays for their protection. He prays for their sustainment through their circumstances, the adversity that they face. And he prays for their unity. What, what, oh man, so much that we can learn right now in the midst of our current situation and circumstances, praying for one another, for protection and for sustainment and then for unity. And then the last part, he prays that the gospel would go forth. So he prays for himself, really the glory of God. He prays for believers and he prays for the gospel to go forward. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 to 5 and we're going to learn what Jesus prays and how he prays, but also we're going to see and learn how we can pray. Obviously we're not the Son of God, but we can pray. We can learn from what Jesus prays here. And so there's some profound principles that we're going to be able to learn uh, in this text this morning. Specifically what we're going to see this morning is that he prays for the glory of God. That the glory of God would be seen. We'll understand what that means in just a moment. And then he prays the will of God. Something that we ought to all pray. He doesn't bring his laundry list of needs to God and say meet these needs. He brings God's laundry list of his intentions and says I want to do those. Radically different than how we pray, right? And then lastly he prays that the world would see. That the world would see the glory of God, the glory of the Son, the glory of the cross, the glory of the resurrection. So those are our three things that we're going to see this morning and that we can learn from in terms of how to pray ourselves. God's glory, God's will, and that the world would see. So first, let's look at praying God's glory. In verse 1, we're told, when Jesus had spoken these words, and that's referring back to all the way back to the beginning of chapter 13, really, what's known as the farewell discourse and this teaching in the upper room with the disciples, Jesus, after having taught them all these things, said all of these things, specifically, I'm leaving, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, you're going to face persecution, but you're not alone, you have a helper and a teacher. Those are the things that he was teaching in in really 13 to 17. After having said all these things, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And what we get is an intimate glimpse of what it looks like for Jesus to talk with the Father, the Son to talk with the Father, the intimacy of relationship they have. The, the curtain is being pulled back on his prayers, and we, we get into this intimate 
conversation. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, when you look at verse 1, it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And then if you look at verse 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me. Glorify your Son. Glorify me. Doesn't that sound, at first glance, it sounds very narcissistic. It it sounds very self-centered. It sounds very much about Jesus wanting praise and glory and honor for himself. But there are three phrases here in verse 1 that really help us understand what Jesus is praying. And and help us see that this is not narcissistic. This is absolutely the opposite of narcissism. This is the opposite of self-centeredness. This is actually other-centered, specifically God-centered, God-glorifying prayer. What are those three phrases? The first is something we've talked about several times through the Gospel of John, and that is the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, as we look through the Gospel of John, this is used repeatedly over and over again. It's the hour of Jesus' death. The hour of Jesus' death. That's what he's talking about. Up to about 12, verse uh, 23, Jesus was saying, my hour has not yet come. The hour of my death has not yet come. In 12, 23, he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. The hour has come. And now he's praying, and the hour has come. The hour of his death has come. What's interesting is that John and Jesus both refer to the hour of his death as the hour of his glorification, the hour of his greatness, the hour of his majesty, the hour of his splendor. So the hour of death, how can that be glorious? How can the hour of his death be splendor, majesty, wonder, awesomeness? How can that be Well, that leads us to the second phrase, and that is, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. The word glorify that Jesus uses here is a verb, and it it means to make much of, bring attention to, draw all eyes to this moment, to the hour of my death. Speak of my death, it means to speak of something as being unusually worthy of honor or to make much of something. So in essence, Jesus is saying, make much of this hour, make much of my death, make much of my suffering, be glorified in and through my suffering. Put the spotlight on this moment. Why would Jesus want all attention drawn to this moment, to his death? Why would he want all attention brought to the Son and his suffering? And that leads us to the third phrase, and really why Jesus says, glorify the Son, or glorify the crucifixion, or glorify the cross, or draw all attention, make much of my death. And the third phrase is, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Or said another way, that the the cross may magnify or make much of you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? So that, or that, is, is in the middle of the sentence there. Father, the hour has come. My hour of death, my hour of suffering has come. Make much of this hour that this hour or my death or my suffering may make much of you. This is entirely the opposite of self-centered prayer. Jesus is not saying, 
hey, I, I need a little bit more puffing up here. I need you to, to, to praise me a little bit more. I need you to make a bigger deal out of me. I mean, look at all that I'm doing. That's not what he's praying. He's praying, make much of my suffering, make much of my death, so that my death will make much of you. The, the heartbeat of his prayer is about the glory of God, the magnificence of God, the splendor of God, the majesty of God. Draw attention to my death so that all attention is brought to you. Again, why would Jesus word it this way? Why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus articulate it this way? Paul says this in, in Romans three twenty five uh, to 26. He says that the Father put forward Jesus, the Son. He, he offered up the Son so that the Father, God, the Father, might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying? Why is Jesus praying this way. What's going on here? In, in, in Romans, uh, Romans 3, 25, 26, and, and Jesus' prayer here, first of all, we need to understand that our sins are against God and God alone. Psalm 51, David re- recognizes, though I've sinned against Bathsheba, though I've sinned against Uriah, my sins are ultimately against God, against you, Heavenly Father. I've rebelled against you. Our sins are against God and God alone. Therefore, only God can satisfy his wrath and his holiness. Only God can do that. I've used this illustration before. If, if Addie Wynn, my two-year-old, knocks over a lamp in my house, she has nothing with which to repay me. So I have a choice. I can either make her work it all for the rest of her life, and her work ethic is pretty suspect right now. Her focus is, is pretty slim. Or I can absorb the cost in myself. I can take the cost of that lamp or that vase or whatever it is on myself. Our sins are against God and God alone. Only God can satisfy his wrath. Only God can satisfy his holiness. And the question comes up, well, if we are as wicked as the Bible says and sinful as the Bible says, how can God declare us holy? Is he overlooking sin? Is he, is he just ignoring it? And that leads to the other side of the coin of the gospel and the grace of God. Not only does he absorb his own wrath and his own holiness in the sacrifice of the Son, he extends grace and forgiveness to those who do not deserve it. This is why Paul can say he is both just and justifier. To, to be justified means to be not, no longer condemned or to be set free. So God is just. He has not ignored sin. He has not turned a blind eye to sin. He has satisfied sin. How did he satisfy sin? In the death of the Son, putting forward the sacrifice of the Son. And through the death of the Son, by faith clinging to the death of the Son, we are declared justified, no longer condemned or free. What Jesus is saying is, is and so many commentators comment on, on, on his prayer in all of chapter 17 as the most profound, like you could spend years and years mining the depths of chapter 17 and you'll never get to the bottom of it. What Jesus is doing is saying, God, the mystery of redemption that you and I were working on before the foundation of the world, before history ever began, and he says in verse 5, before the world ever existed, has come to fruition, has come to this point, has come to the cross. May the world see the glory 
glory of the cross, that you have satisfied your holy and just wrath, and that you have also made a way of forgiveness of sins. These two things that seem paradoxical have been brought together in the cross. Lord, Father, bring all attention to this moment. It is so profound and so historical and so beautiful and so full of splendor. May the world see this. That's what he's praying here when he prays, God, you receive all glory and all attention. When we think about, in terms of application, how he prays just in this first point, this first verse, we understand, when we understand this clearly, we quickly realize that Jesus' prayer for himself is really the prayer for the glory of God. And we have to begin to analyze, is that how we pray? Is that the heartbeat of our prayers? Is that what we start with? God, you be glorified? Or is it, God, I have this need and this need and this list and this thing, and I really could take a little bit of this and I like a little bit of that too. Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is praying, you be glorified, not me. If you think about how we often pray, it's, that's how we often pray. It's about us. It's about our needs. Now, we're told, Paul tells us, bring your prayers, your petitions, your supplications, your intercessions to God. Do it constantly, always, never ceasing. We're invited to do that. But is that the heartbeat of our prayers? All about what we want and what we need, or is it all about who God is and what He desires to do? What's even more astonishing to me is that Jesus does not ask, Father, I've come to the hour of my death. I'm about to die and suffer. Please, I don't want to do that. Get me out of this. He doesn't pray, God, remove me from my circumstances. He says, Father, be glorified in my suffering, in my death, through my circumstances. As we learn to pray, And we'll see it again. That's how he prays for believers down in in verse 13 to 19. He doesn't pray, Lord, remove them from their circumstances. He says, keep them in their circumstances. And he means two things. Not just keep them in their circumstances, but protect them in their circumstances. Why? So that you may be glorified when they lift their eyes, though all the world crumbles around them, and they say, but God be glorified. Is that the heartbeat of our prayers? Are we praying, God, sustain me in my circumstances? Or are we praying, God, I want out. Let me out. Maybe the very thing that we're trying to avoid is the very thing he wishes to use in our lives and through our lives to make much of him. This is profound. You say, well, Neil, that's easy for Jesus to pray. He's Jesus. He's the son of God. Of course he has all power and authority and he can pray that. I'm not that strong. I can't pray that. I can't think that way. I don't think that way on the the regular. That's just not how I live. And now I appreciate your confession because you're getting to the heart of why Jesus is praying this prayer. Because you desperately need his strength. You desperately need his sacrifice. You desperately, I desperately need his power, his perfect life, his perfect obedience, and his perfect death. I need that daily, that he is my strength to pray in these ways. He is my hope to pray in these ways. But he goes on in verses 2 really down to 4, and he begins to pray God's will. 
So in verse 1, he says, Father, glorify yourself through the Son, through the death of the Son, through the sacrifice that you and your, your mystery and your will and your power and your providence have all orchestrated together. Glorify, magnify the Son's death so that you would be magnified. And then he says this word in verse 2, since. Since, it can be understood as in as much as or after all. And then he gives a laundry list of things. And and what he does is, he says, after all, after all, that's the very reason that you sent me. You you gave me power over, authority over all flesh. Verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Also verse 2. And then he gives a definition of verse, in verse 3 of eternal life. And then verse 4, And I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Do you hear what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying, glorify the Son in the death of the Son. Glorify the, the, the death of the Son so that you might receive all glory. And then he says, after all, that's why you sent me. That's why I'm here. I came to live the perfect life and die the perfect death and to offer eternal life. This is the very reason I've come. What Jesus is doing is he's praying the will of God. He does not come to the Father and say, here's my laundry list of all the things that I want. Here's all the things that I need. Here's all the things that I demand. He says, no, no, no. You, you gave me authority over all flesh. You gave me authority to, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. You, you gave me that responsibility, that assignment. You gave me all these reasons. This is the very reason that you sent me now Let's do it. Let's accomplish it. Let's finish it on the cross. He's praying the will of God. He's praying exactly what God desires to accomplish. This is, again, profound in terms of what we're learning about prayer. The overarching purpose that Jesus has has come in the flesh... To live, he's clearly come to reveal God in the flesh, but he came to die. To be a substitute, to live the perfect life, and to live and and to die the perfect death. This is why he came. And Jesus is saying, and this is exactly what he says in verse 3, this is exactly why I came. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word know in the middle there is not that they have intellectual information about you. The word know is that they have a relationship with you. He uses a totally different word for know. It means to have a relationship. So what Jesus is saying is, after all, this is the very reason I came. I came to die so that man, sinful man, could be reconciled and have a right relationship with a holy God. He's praying the will of God. God, you be glorified. God, your will be accomplished. This is profoundly different than how we pray, is it not? What do we often pray? I want, I need, I, I, I. We don't pray, God, your will be done. We pray, my will be done. Jesus is flipping that. He's praying something totally different. He's praying, no, 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 not my will, but your will be done. You be magnified. You be made much of. Accomplish what you set out to accomplish on the cross. Do it through me. Let this be. Let this happen. I think this would be a great point, families, parents, for us to really talk about. What is prayer? 
This is a great place for us to talk about with our kids. What is prayer? Is it bending God's will to ours or is it bending our will to God's? Those are two different things. Which is it? And, and, and if we're going to begin to pray God's will, where do we learn God's will? Where do we learn God's heartbeat? Where do we learn what God intends and plans and in order for us to be able to pray what he wills, intends, and plans? We learn it in the word. So the more we're in the word, the more we're going to pray the will of God, the intentions of God, the heartbeat of God. The more we pray the word, the more we're praying God's desires, God's intentions, God's plans. This would be a great place for us to have a conversation. John Stott was a pastor and he says this, the purpose of true prayer is not to bend God's will to ours, but always to bend our will to his. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He says, listen, this is, this is what you sent me for. This is what, you, what, what we worked out before the foundations of the world. This is why I've come to this moment. Let's do it. Let's accomplish it. Let's finish it. May it be so. I think it's also fascinating. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in uh, Westminster Chapel, and, and he he prayed, or he, he said this about Jesus' prayer. We don't have this on the screens. He says, here he is just before the cross. The crucial moment is at hand. He knows something about the agony and the sweat of Gethsemane. And his one desire is this. Father, enable me to go on. Give me strength to bear. Give me all that I need to do this in order that your great glory in this matter of salvation can be revealed and made manifest. Jesus' prayers stand in radical contrast to secular prayer and to religious prayer. Secular prayer, ultimately, it doesn't acknowledge a God. Secularism says there is no God, or maybe at best there might be, but he's irrelevant. Secular prayer is, I'm going to offer, I'm sending prayers your way. It, we don't have a thing we're praying to. We don't have a person we're praying to. It's just devoid. It, and ultimately, it's, it's about what, what I want or, or goodwill that I want towards you. Religious prayer is, is very similar. Might acknowledge God, but ultimately, religious prayer is rooted in self. It's, it's what can I receive. It's, it's, it's how can I benefit. It's, it's God, I want this. Jesus stands in stark contrast to both of these Secular prayer and religious prayer, both of which say the way to, to life is more power, more authority, more effort, more exertion, and even more exertion at the expense of others. Jesus says, no, 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 not my way, not my will, your will be done. And how is it going to be done? Not by my power, wielding my power, but my giving up power, giving up authority. Jesus is... Is his prayer is profound. It's, it's so deep and so profound and we can learn so much from it. Even in his prayer for himself, his attention is squarely on God and his glory and his will. And that leads us to this third thing that Jesus desires, Jesus prays, Jesus wants and that we can learn from. And that's in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence... With the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. There's some profound truth. If we really want to spend a month or so, we ought to just meditate on that last phrase. I, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We, we know what John says in John 1, 1 to 3, that the word existed before the foundation of the world with God, was God. And, and, and Jesus is here saying, yes, that's true. That's me. I did. I existed before the foundations of the world with God at his side. But there's something more I think he's praying here. I think he's praying that the world would see that glory, that pre-existent glory in the cross, in the resurrection, and in the Father's will. So so he says something here in verse 5, and now... Jesus prays that the, the world would, would begin to see. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had. There's some technical things here. The, the sentence structure is, is somewhat difficult. He, he says the verb glorify, again, make much of me. And then he says this phrase, in your presence, which means beside you. Make much of me beside you. Glorify me beside you with the glory as before. The, the second word that he uses, I don't want to lose you with the technicalities here, the, the second word he uses is a noun. So he uses a, a verb to begin with, make much of me with what? With the noun, with the splendor, with the beauty, with the majesty that I had with you, beside you, before the foundations of the world. What, is, what on earth is happening here? I want to teach you a 16th, 17th century word that's fallen out of, out of usage. Uh, I don't use it in my regular vocabulary. You may not either, but it, it helps capture what's going on here. The word is effulgence. If you want to practice that, you can. Effulgence. And it means radiant splendor, unmatched or unparalleled by anything else. We often use this term to describe the sun. If you've ever tried to look at the sun, you know how successful that is. You know how, how productive that is. When I drive Addie Wynn down the road in the early mornings and the sun is shining in, she's, she cracks me up. She doesn't turn away. She stares at it and squints and grunts and says, Daddy, and she wants me to make the sun move. <laughs> Instead of her, just, just turn your head the other way. I have to constantly remind her, turn your head the other way. She'll finally turn her head the other way. This, this week, I was sitting in a coffee shop in a window talking to a friend, and, and my watch, the light hit my watch, and it, it just smoked him right in the eye. And, and he just, oh, oh, just turning his head away. Also this week, driving over the Cochrane Bridge, going, going west, if you, if you ever drive over the Cochrane Bridge at sunrise, over the Cochrane Bridge, the sun is behind you, and it will, because the bridge arches and moves and turns, it will hit your passenger side mirror and then it will move and hit your driver your rear view mirror and then your driver's mirror and all at the same time it it, all the 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 street signs will also be reflecting it at just the right position all of the sun and all of its glory will pierce your eyes and you will nearly run off the road and you'll turn your head what is jesus praying here father do not let them look away Father, let them see all the gruesomeness of the cross and recognize that they are so sinful, someone had to die. Father, do not let them look away. Let them see the infinite compassion and love and grace of the cross. 
that while they are so sinful, someone had to die. They are so infinitely loved. Someone willingly volunteered for them. Jesus is saying, in this moment, Father, as I approach the cross, as I go to the cross, after the cross in resurrection, may they see the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, the glory of the wisdom of the cross, the glory of the gruesomeness of the cross, the glory of the grace of the cross. May they see and not look away. May they see and never forget. May it sear their eyes. May it pierce their hearts. May it melt their lives. May it not just be another thing they talk about on a Sunday after Sunday. Or may it not just be another thing that they read past page after page. May it radically infiltrate their life and move their lives and change their lives. That's what Jesus is praying here. And guess who he's praying this for? You. And me. He's praying for believers. And then he prays, Lord, there are many. Down in verse 20 to 26, there are many who have yet to hear. May they see and not forget. May they not be able to look away. May they believe. Do you know if you're a believer today, you are the result, the answer to Jesus' prayer in chapter 17? If you are not a believer today, Jesus is praying for you right now. This is his prayer for you that you would see the glory of the cross and not miss it. That your heart would be melted, that you would, you would turn in repentance to the Father to, through the Son. This is what Jesus is praying. Here's what Jesus knows. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To the God of this world is little g. He's talking about Satan, the, the enemy. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you know what Jesus is praying? Jesus is praying, lift the veil, Heavenly Father. Lift the veil. The, those who are blind to this, may they see it. May they not look away. He's praying that the light of the cross, the light of the sun, the light of the gospel would pierce the darkness. The darkness of the world, the darkness of your mind, the darkness of your heart. And that we'd be radically changed because of it. Does this sound like your prayers? Does this sound like my prayers? Does this, is this the heartbeat of our prayers God, you be glorified. God, your will be done. No matter the circumstances I face, God, may the world know through me of the goodness and the grace of you. We learn not only what he's praying, but we also learn how to pray. These are the heartbeat. These are the, these are, this is how we ought to pray. We pray not my will, not my way, but his, that the world may know. Jesus, it's important for us, if, we, if we're not careful, Jesus is not just setting an example here. He is, but he's also not. He's setting an example, but he's not just setting an example. He, he's praying, and he is praying so the disciples hear. He's allowing them in on this, and as the reader, we're being allowed in on this. So this is an example, but we can't miss why Jesus prays this. Why he came in the first place. Why he's going to the cross. And why he's praying this. 
He's praying that we would hear the gospel. The good news that though we are sinners, we have a Savior who died for us. And he's praying that once we see this, we never forget. And so for that reason, we come to the table and we're, we're going to have communion here. And we're going to do exactly what Jesus told us to do, which is to remember to remember his sacrifice, to remember his body broken, to remember his blood shed. And, and if you're watching at home, we sent out a text this week. Hopefully you got that text to, to let you know that, that to, to be prepared for this because we want our whole church to be able to celebrate this. All of you who make a confession that Jesus is your Savior, that his body was broken for you, his blood did and was shed for you. You're, you're making a confession in essence today. You're saying, yes, that's true for me. And we want to say that loudly. We want to declare that. Yes, I am a sinner. And yes, I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior, the only Savior that will ever give me right relationship to God. And we want to also remind everyone, whether you're at home or whether you're here, we want to remind everyone that if you have not made that confession, that, that you have not received Jesus as Savior, as Redeemer, as Reconciler, please receive Jesus before you receive the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine can't rescue your soul, but Jesus can. And so we do this in remembrance. And what's going to happen here... You have the cups on the table there. Uh, the top has a wafer. The bottom has the juice. Uh, and I'm going to pray for us. And Brian is going to lead us. We're going to stand and worship. And you can take this uh, as you feel led during that time. We're going to sing a couple songs. Uh, and you take this as you remember and celebrate. Father, thank you for the cross. This instrument of death that reminds us of our sin. Thank you for the Son who was broken and bled and died, which reminds us of our sin, that we are so sinful someone had to die. Thank you, Lord, for the other side of the cross, the good news of the gospel that someone was willing to die for us and someone was perfect and righteous enough to satisfy your wrath and your holiness. And we know that from your word is your Son. Thank you for both your holiness and your grace seen most visibly on the cross. Lord, we pray what Jesus prays. We pray that in this moment right now, as people are participating at home, online, or participating in this room, that there not be anyone in this room that misses the point or anyone at home watching that misses the point. We pray what Jesus prays, that all the light of the glory of God shines in the face of the Son on the cross and all of the light of the Son and the cross shines in our eyes and we cannot look away. And it pierces our hearts and it melts our hearts and our lives are radically transformed because of it. And then we pray as a result of of this moment that you died on the cross and this moment of salvation and this, this ongoing remembrance, we pray that the world would hear. We pray that our families would hear. 
our spouses, our unbelieving spouses would hear and see. Where will they hear? Where will they see? May it be in us. We pray that our unbelieving co-workers and family members will see and will hear the glory, the goodness, the greatness, the splendor, the majesty of the cross and the gospel. Where will they hear and where will they see? May it be in us, this church, this congregation. And may the world hear and may the world see the good news of the gospel in and through us. We thank you, Father, and your brilliance and your wisdom and your wonder for for satisfying your wrath and offering us forgiveness in the cross. And we remember that now as we sing and as we participate in remembering the body broken for us and the blood shed for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.